Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn with me to Mark chapter 5. And if you don't have your Bible, there should be some in the pews in front of you. Mark chapter 5, we continue our consecutive series on the Gospel of Mark. We are going through this amazing book, passage by passage. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verses 21 to 43. I do hope to finish out this chapter, this Lord's Day. Thus says the word of our Lord. Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. If you recall, he was previously ministering in uh, near Capernaum, and the crowds were pressing up against him, and to escape the uh, pressure of the throng, he got into a boat, and he taught on the boat by the sea, and after he was done teaching a series of parables, then he set out with his disciples over the Sea of Galilee, and they went from that northwest corner of the shore of the Sea of Galilee all the way to the eastern shore, where they arrived at Gergesa, known as the country of the Gadarenes. And uh, during the night when they were crossing the sea, a great storm rose, and the boat was about to sink, and the Lord stilled the storm with a word. When he got to Gergesa, he was met by this demoniac who was possessed with a legion, with a great many devils, a whole army of demons. And this man ran out to the Lord Jesus, fell before him. The demons confessed who he was, begged him not to send them into the abyss. Uh, nonetheless, he did expel them into the pigs who then ran off the cliff into the sea and died, thus the demons were disembodied, probably to be confined to the abyss. And if you recall what we said last week, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ crossed the Sea of Galilee, obviously knowing what would happen. Uh, his ear was inclined to the Father's will, and he was perfectly in step with the Father's will. He was the prophet of prophets. He had full knowledge of what was about to transpire. And in the town in Gergesa, the... Uh, people of that town ran out, and they pleaded with him to depart from their region. So he got back into a boat, and he crossed back over to the other side. Apparently, he went all the way over to Gergesa just to deliver and save this demoniac, which, by the way, was in a Gentile region known as Decapolis. So there we had a glimpse of Christ, the great missionary sent from heaven who came to seek and to save the lost. He saved this demoniac. He crosses over to the other side. No sooner does he get again to the western shore of the Sea of Galilee that the multitudes gather together. Everybody drops what they're doing and they run out to meet him and again to throng about him. And so that's what's happening here. Verse 22, and behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, 
My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she will live. So Jesus went with him and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately, there's Mark's, one of Mark's favorite words, immediately, the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around to the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid, only believe. Present active indicative there in the Greek, only believe. The sense is keep believing, keep holding on, don't give up faith. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. When he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying that he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. By the way, Talitha, another way to translate that from the Aramaic into English is little lamb, the tenderness of Christ. Immediately, there's our word again, the girl arose and walked. For she was 12 years of age, and they were overcome with amazement. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it, and said that something should be given her to eat. Well, brothers and sisters, the beginning of faith is found at the end of ourselves. Faith realizes its beginning when we realize that we are at an end. 
the end of our strength, the end of our abilities, the end of our resources, the end of our merits, the end of our entitlements, the end of our boasting. Yes, the end of ourselves. And that way when we do believe, we cannot take any credit for it. And God, and God alone receives all the glory for our believing. The reason that faith can only begin when we come to an end is because of what faith is in its very nature. While the exercise of faith involves the engagement of our wills, faith itself is not a concoction of the will. It's the gift of God, granted by sovereign grace, breathed into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And the Bible everywhere bears witness to this truth. When Apollos arrived in Achaia in Acts 18.27, Luke writes that he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. They believed through grace. Thus faith is not a work and it's not to be reduced to an effort that we put forth. Faith is granted and enabled and sustained and schooled into maturity by the gracious God who saves us not because of what we do but because of what he does for us and in us. As Paul said in Philippians 2.13, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do, for his good pleasure. Hebrews 12.2 puts our Lord Jesus Christ on par with God the Father when it says that Christ, Jesus, is the author and finisher of our faith. Another way to translate that is that he is the originator and perfecter of our faith. He is the source of both its inception and its increase. And we learn to grow in faith as we are instructed under the tutelage of Christ. And it's a very prominent part of that tutelage whereby Christ and his providential government of the circumstances of our lives brings us to confess that the beginning of his resources is found at the end of our own resources. Thus to believe unto the saving of our souls entails looking away from ourselves to Christ alone. Robert Raymond, one theologian, writes, quote, If salvation is to be effected by God's grace, his undeserved favor and mercy, and exclude thereby all human boasting, it can only be by faith, whose nature as a psychic act, by which he means as a, a mental act, looks away from all the native human resources of the one believing to the Savior's salvific work, which rendered 
full and total satisfaction before God, end quote. Faith, in fact, is gloriously illustrated in the book of Numbers, chapter 21. The people of Israel had again murmured against God. They again sought to subvert the leadership of Moses, whom God had appointed to lead them out of Egypt. And so the Lord, in his righteous judgment, sent fiery serpents to bite them with this mortal venom. They deserved to die, and they were doomed to die. And yet the Lord, in his mercy, instructed Moses to make a serpent out of bronze and to lift it up on a pole. And every person who looked upon that serpent would be healed from the deadly poison. That, of course, is a picture of Christ, who became a curse for us. Galatians 3.13 We have been infected with the mortal venom of sin. And it's only as we look away from self to Christ that we can be healed. Any Israelite who would have turned his back to that type and picture of Christ would die. Any person who would try to concoct his own remedy for the poison would die. Only one thing would suffice to save them from the poison, and that was a faith-enabled look to the substitutionary curse-bearer that had been lifted up on their behalf. When we realize, as Paul said, that we have the sentence of death in ourselves, then we trust not in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Well, the passage that we read in the Gospel of Mark beautifully illustrates what faith is like. Here we observe the faith of two desperate people who had been brought to the end of themselves and had nowhere else to turn but to Christ. Their faith was under fire. But it was the Lord who made this furnace of affliction to become the classroom in which he taught them what it means to have faith in God. So as we take a closer look at our passage now, I have three thoughts that I would like to impart to you this Lord's Day. Here we observe, first of all, desperate faith. Second, strengthened faith. And third, rewarded faith well in the first place desperate faith at first glance it might seem like the two individuals spoken of in our text Jairus and the lady with the hemorrhage have little in common they were pretty much at opposite ends of the social ladder Jairus we are told in verse 22 was one of the rulers of the synagogue. His name meant in Hebrew, he will awaken, which may have a prophetic connection with the miracle of resurrection that he was instrumental in fetching from the Lord. Now Jairus wasn't a priest, he wasn't a Levite, 
He wasn't a rabbi or a Pharisee or a scribe, and so technically he was a layman. But he was in charge of organizing worship for God's people every Sabbath. His responsibilities would have included managing the liturgical, administrative, and financial affairs of the synagogue and its membership. He would have been the friend of many a rabbi and surely oversaw one of the synagogues that Jesus had preached in near or uh, possibly even in Capernaum. Normally a man would be appointed to this position only if he was wealthy and affluent and highly esteemed in the community. And so this Jairus was at the top of the social ladder. He was probably also well-known later in the Christian community because Mark mentions him by name in his gospel, and it wasn't common for someone to be healed, to be mentioned by name, unless that person would have been known to the recipients who received the gospel account when it was written, or at least belonged to their social circle. So in all probability, Jairus joined the church after the resurrection of our Lord. But on the other end of the spectrum is this unnamed woman. She simply called in verse 25, a certain woman, nameless, socially insignificant, nothing is said of her social status, only of her illness. She suffered not just from an abnormal amount of bleeding during her monthly cycle, but apparently from chronic bleeding, which means she was probably anemic as well. She would have been abnormally fatigued and tired all the time. But on top of this, according to Leviticus 15, her discharge rendered her ceremonially unclean according to the law on a permanent basis. As long as her condition continued, she was unclean. And this condition, we are told in the text, had been continuing for 12 years. 12 long years. Actually, as long as the whole of Jairus' daughter's life. And further, anyone who touched her or who touched anything that she sat on or came into contact with would have also been rendered unclean until purification. So she would have been cast to the periphery of society as a social outcast. She wasn't permitted to attend synagogue worship, nor could she even step foot in the court of women in the temple in Jerusalem. She wasn't permitted to enter, and if she had been married in Jewish society, she had probably either been sadly put away by her husband or at least had to live separately from him. So she was on one of the lowest rungs of the social ladder. Jairus, one of the highest rungs, this lady on one of the lowest rungs. But the Lord reveals his compassion and mercy by performing a miracle for both. 
Here the beautiful heart of Christ is opened up to us and that he grants the request of the one as well as the desire of the other. Well, there is no respect of persons with God. As he said to Samuel, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7. And wherever there is sincerity in seeking the Lord, wherever there is any inkling of genuine faith in the heart, the Lord will make good on his promises to honor it. As Peter said in Acts 10, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Well, if you've ever thought that perhaps you're a lost cause, if you've ever thought that God has or perhaps is on the verge of giving up on you, that you feel so lowly and insignificant that you cannot fathom how the high and lofty Lord of glory and King of the universe could possibly hear your prayers and heal your hurts, that I want you to remember the plight of this woman and how the Lord had compassion on her just as he did on Jairus, the prominent Jairus. The Lord loves the lowly, and the Lord loves the lowly, nameless, social outcast, just as he loves the Peters and Pauls and Jairuses. But with all the differences between Jairus and this lady, the text does bind them together under a common theme. They were both desperate. They were both desperate, and they both sought the Lord Jesus Christ out of their desperation, believing that he alone had the remedy that they needed and that nobody else could provide. Jairus's desperate faith can be seen in his actions. Look at verse 22. It says that he came to Jesus and fell at his feet. Well, this prestigious and affluent fellow humbles himself to the dust before the Lord. It wasn't typical for a Jewish man to fall down before another man unless it was his king. Remember Mordecai in the book of Esther? I will not bow. Jairus bows. Jairus falls down. His prostration was probably motivated by a combination of belief in Jesus as Messiah in addition to sheer desperation. Jairus' only daughter, we are told in verse 23, was dying. The Greek is very emphatic. She was on the verge of death, about to cross that precipice at any moment. And as is the case with any pious parent, this daughter, his only daughter, was the love and joy of his life. There's nothing he wouldn't do for her. He couldn't imagine the heart-wrenching pain of losing her. And here she was on the brink of death. 
And then verse 23 says that Jairus begged him earnestly. He begged him earnestly. The ruler of this synagogue, one of the most esteemed men in the town, became a beggar. He's willing to suffer public humiliation if only his daughter may experience the master's healing touch. Desperate times call for desperate measures. The majority of the synagogue community, by the way, had rejected Jesus. In Judea, the Jews were already shunning the followers of Christ and putting them out of the synagogue, as the Gospel of John tells us. But this man doesn't care. He doesn't care what the social repercussions are of publicly begging before Christ and identifying with Christ. He knows that Jesus is sent from God and has the power to heal his daughter. His faith is clearly seen in his request. He tells the Lord, come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she will live. You see the confidence in his petition. He says it like there was no doubt in his mind. He had heard of the reports of Christ's miracles and had probably witnessed a good many of them himself. And so the Lord responds to the request of faith. And verse 24 tells us, So Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. But then while the Lord is on his way, he's interrupted by this woman. And she too was desperate. And we see her faith expressed in what she was saying to herself. Look at verse 28. She says, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Now you have to consider that her ailment was more than an inconvenience. It was ruining her life. In verse 34, Jesus actually called her condition an affliction, it says in the New King James Version. But the Greek word mastix is the word for a whip or a scourge. One commentator explains that this is, quote, a graphic expression, meaning whip, lash, scourge, or torment. Sometimes the word is translated as torment in our Bibles. The term combines physical suffering and shame, hence something akin to punishment, end quote. Well, the word describes a condition, according to one lexicon, of great distress, abnormally great distress. And Mark further says in verse 26 that she had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. And so her body was broke. Her purse was broke. Her religious life was broke. Her social life was broke. And the only ones who maybe could have helped her, the doctors, only made her worse. We get a picture of some of the things she went through by reading the Jewish Talmud, which suggests more than 10 possible remedies for this illness 
that she had. The practicing physicians of the day would have sought to prescribe remedies like this. Let me read to you an excerpt of a few of the things it says. It says, take the gum of Alexandria, the weight of a small silver coin, of alum the same, of crocus the same. Let them be crushed together and be given in wine to the woman that has an issue of blood. If this does not benefit, take of Persian onions, three pints, boil them in wine and give her to drink and say, arise from thy flux. If this does not cure her, set her in a place where two ways meet and let her hold a cup of wine in her right hand and let someone come behind and frighten her and say, arise from thy flux. You can imagine her despair. But in her desperation, she broke all protocol and pressed through this crowd. Verse 27 says, when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. Jews would wear on their tunic four tassels, according to the Torah. And it was probably one of those tassels that had a blue thread running through it that she reached out and touched. Of course, what she did was contrary to the law. She did break the law. In her uncleanness, she brushed up against everyone in the crowd that she had to press through in order to make it close to Jesus. And she even had the audacity to touch him. Now the crowd was thronging around the Lord Jesus. It wouldn't have been easy to get up there at the front and actually make contact with the Lord. And so her pressing through is another sign of her desperation. But her uncleanness wasn't transmitted to the Lord. Rather, his holiness, his life-giving, transforming power was communicated to her. Just like the leper. You remember in Mark chapter 1, how the leper came to Jesus begging him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And he says, I am willing. I mean, again and again in the Gospel of Mark, we have these uh, pictures opened up to us of the tender, compassionate, merciful, beautiful heart of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what does it say in Mark chapter 1? That Jesus reached forth his hand and touched him and said, I am willing, be cleansed. That was the touch of mercy. That was the touch of affirmation. The Lord didn't have to touch the leper to heal him. He could have just spoke the word, but he touched him to affirm his love and his care for him. And Jesus wasn't contaminated with the leprosy. Rather, it was the leper that was healed. And so there is infinite power and infinite grace and infinite fullness in the Lord Jesus Christ who is more than sufficient for all the needs of fallen mankind. And then we read in verse 29, Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. She felt the power of God course through her body, and she knew in that instant that she had been healed. And what relief 
must have surged through her soul. She was doubtless very grateful to God, but her plan, not a very good plan, was to scurry out of there in a hurry without being noticed. And she had, after all, broken the ceremonial law. She had violated Torah. That was illegal in Israel. And she wasn't about to publicize her law-breaking to her shame. But Jesus had another plan, which leads to our second point, strengthen faith. Strengthen faith. His plan was to strengthen her faith and that of Jairus at the same time, not to mention the faith of future generations who would read these gospel stories. And so let me explain this as the text sets the scene for us. Verse 30 says, And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? The anointing of the Holy Spirit was upon him in such abundant measure that the power of God even surged through his tunic, responding to the touch of faith. Now, Jesus wasn't a magical dispensary of miracles. And it's possible that this woman, in her very weak and unformed faith, had some degree of superstition motivating her actions. Nonetheless, God graciously condescended to meet her where she was at because the seed of genuine faith was in her heart. Healing virtue flowed out of Christ to her because God willed it. And since Jesus is one with God, he immediately knew it. But the disciples, of course, were baffled and said to him, you see the multitude thronging you and you say, who touched me? Jesus, hundreds of people are touching you. You have to force your way through this crowd that's pressing up against you. At every moment. What are you talking about? Do you know it's never a good idea to disagree with the Lord <laughs> and argue with him? This woman's touch was different from that of the entire multitudes. It was the touch of faith. The hand of faith that reaches out and makes contact with Christ is never ignored by our sympathetic Savior. And he wasn't about to miss the opportunity to reassure this woman and commend her faith to everybody around. And so verse 32 says, And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. He knew who it was. He looked right at her. He says, Who touched me as he looks right at her? But the woman, verse 33, fearing and trembling, which, by the way, is a, a frequent response to the power of God revealed through our Lord Jesus Christ and the Gospels especially of Mark and Luke. Fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, she came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She spilled her guts. We can picture the scene she wanted to escape unaware, 
but the Lord called her out. Now why? Why did he call her out? Why didn't he simply let her go on her merry way? I mean, this woman had suffered so much. This poor, downcast, timid, trembling, fearing woman. And yet he calls her out in front of the crowd. She was healed. She was restored to wholeness. Why not just let her go? Well, I think there are several very important reasons for the Lord's action here. For one, she had broken the Torah law. She did break the law. She knew she had done exactly what Leviticus prohibits and that she could get in trouble for it. As the Lord who gave the Torah in the first place, Jesus wasn't about to endorse any violation of the law. He came to uphold the law, to confirm it, to fulfill it. And the ceremonial law was still in place because he had not yet died on the cross to inaugurate the new covenant. And so he wasn't about to participate in or endorse or condone any sin against the law. So by signaling her out, he was issuing a loving reproof through the question that was meant to draw out of her a confession of her sin. She couldn't get away with her sin so easily in the presence of the Holy One who was all-knowing. But second, he called her out so that he could speak the words of peace and reassurance to her soul. Look at how gentle and compassionate he is as he deals with this frail lady. As soon as she confesses what she did, he issues to her an assurance of pardon and healing and salvation even. So he says in verse 34, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. No harsh treatment from the Lord here. He does not quench the smoking flax. He does not break the bruised reed. He calls her out for her sin with a question. As soon as she confesses it, he gives her reassurance and peace. You know, she's the only person in the Gospels that Jesus directly addresses as daughter. It's a term of endearment, of kindness, of love, of affection, No higher accolade could have been possibly bestowed on this poor, despised, lowly woman than to be called the daughter of the king. He turned her shame into the highest of honors. And when he says, your faith has made you well, it literally says in the Greek, your faith has saved you. It saved you. Now, of course, it wasn't her faith per se that saved her. It was Christ that saved her through her faith. But her faith was instrumental in making that connection. She was saved in body and soul by the power of the Redeemer who came to restore a broken humanity. When we come to the Lord Jesus to heal our souls, it's never a good idea to hide anything from him. 
You have to confess your sin to the Lord. All of it. Bring it out into the light and put it under the blood. And when we fess up to our wrongdoing, we might come like this woman, fearing, trembling, scared, uncertain of what the Lord's response to us will be. But when we come with that genuine confession of faith, to our surprise, we then find not a vengeful, angry God who's desirous to crush us in his anger, but a gentle Savior who speaks peace, sweet peace, to our hearts. Well, the third reason he called her out was to, again, strengthen her faith and instruct us about faith. She had thought that she could keep her saving encounter with Christ a secret. But faith that is reluctant to own Christ publicly is a faith that will languish and suffer from its weakness. Faith is strengthened and confirmed by our public confession of Christ, especially when we know that we might face opposition for it. I was much encouraged about this by a sermon from Charles Spurgeon. He preached it in 1882. And so let me share a snippet of it with you. He said, quote, This poor woman shrank into herself. She knew that she was cured, but she was afraid to think of what she had done to get the cure. I have known many poor souls believe in Christ and yet feel as if it was presumption to do so. It appears to a truly humbled conscience to be so great a mercy to be forgiven that it feels hardly justified in daring to think that Jesus could have put away its sin. It says, listen to me, you who are trembling. Let not your fears rob your Lord of his honor. You must confess your faith. For Jesus loves that those whom he heals should own it. Do not then hold your tongue. If Jesus has indeed healed you, tell him of it. Tell his people to his praise. Such grace ought to be known. Is there anything to be ashamed of? I, for my part, glory in being saved by Christ. If he that is a Christian is a fool, then write me down among the fools. If your Lord and Master did not grudge to stand in the pillory for you till they did spit in his face, what a coward you must be if you ever draw back from avowing your faith in him from the fear of ridicule. If he owned your cause even unto death, then never blush to be regarded as his follower. If Jesus saved you from going down into the pit, and made you a new creature, never be ashamed in any company to say, the Christ has made me whole, henceforth I am his. End quote. The fact is, brethren, there is no such thing as a closet Christian. You know, much is made in our world today about coming out of the closet. The wicked and perverse, how bold they are, to celebrate their perversity. But they tell us that our faith doesn't belong in the public square or in social discourse or in political theory 
or in the world of ideas out there. Biblically, our faith is never meant to be kept private. It's a public affair because our faith is not just our personal, relativized little set of beliefs. It's rooted in the truth and reality of God. And our confession of it glorifies the sufficiency of our Savior who offers the only remedy to a world that's sunk in despair. And so we should be praying and asking the Lord to give us this boldness. Yes, to confess our sin to the Lord, but especially to confess our Lord publicly. To own and identify with Christ so that his name would be glorified through our witness, even if we have to suffer the martyrdom of our reputation for it. And in many circles today, you will, in the midst of our cancel culture. The Lord deserves the glory for the wonderful work that he's done in our souls. Psalm 25.3, David said, Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. Let the perverse who celebrate their wickedness, let them be ashamed. But let us not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. As Paul said to Timothy, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. But what about Jairus and his poor daughter? As the Lord pauses and stops to reassure and strengthen the faith of this woman. So his delay was calculated to strengthen the faith of Jairus at the same time. Although certainly not in the way that Jairus had expected. When Jairus fell at the feet of the Lord, his daughter was already on the brink of death. And so that was like a 911 call. And Jesus hastens forth like an ambulance to answer the call. I saw an ambulance go by the other day, and as is my custom when I see the ambulance with its sirens on, I utter a prayer for whoever might be in it or whoever they might be going to help. And just think of that ambulance. If the ambulance is on, it, on its way and... Uh, maybe a caravan of cows decides to cross the road. I don't know if that happens around here. <laughs> Probably used to. Uh, it, it would happen in some places in Mexico where I've been. And then it can't get through. It's held up. This is an emergency. And so you can imagine the, the frustration and desperation of Jairus here as he's observing the interaction between the Lord and this woman and yet at the same time, he witnesses the miracle whereby the Lord healed this woman so as to be a help to his faith. 
This poor Jairus, however, while he's waiting, while the Lord is having this exchange with the woman, got the awful news of verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, speaking to the woman, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Why trouble him any further? Just give up. She's dead. Hope's lost. It's all over. Give up faith. Give up hope. Jairus was brought to the brink of despair as the situation was as far gone as it could possibly get. But then comes the response of our Lord. Verse 36. As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not be afraid, only believe, only believe. Which leads us to our third point, rewarded faith. Jairus had not sought the Lord in vain. The same power that stilled the storm, the same power that had expelled the legion, the same power that had healed that woman is the same power that will now not flinch or draw back in the face of death itself. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Jairus had diligently sought the Lord, and his faith would not go unrewarded. Now, I think it's important here to put this in theological perspective because too many believers have this false notion that faith has some intrinsic merit to it that entitles one to receive a reward from the Lord. Well, the reward that God gives to faith is not on account of any merit in faith itself. It's the reward of grace. The Lord who works faith in us, he then crowns that faith with his benefits. When we believe, we empty ourselves and we look to Christ to fill us with his fullness. Faith is to take an empty vessel to the Lord that begs of him that he would fill it. And that's what Jairus did. And thus his faith was rewarded. Again, not because of who he was, but because of who Christ is and the generosity and mercy and resources of his grace. When the Lord came to Jairus' house, he found a tumult of professional mourners. Rabbis in this day actually said that when someone would pass away that it was the duty of near family members to hire professional mourners. They saw it as uh, giving due honor to the deceased. They were already there. There would be wailing women and others playing instruments. Verse 39 says, when Jesus came in, he said to them, why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping course, this is a metaphorical manner of speaking. The child was indeed dead. But the death of believers is repeatedly depicted 
in Scripture as sleep. Not because the consciousness of the person falls unconscious when they go dead. Because our consciousness is bound up with our soul, with our, with our spirit. But it's called sleep because it's temporary. In Christ, 1 Corinthians 15.55 says, Death has lost its sting. And it's no more difficult for the Lord to awaken a sleeping person as it is for him to raise the dead. But a miracle of this magnitude was too intimate. It was too revelatory of the heart of God to allow unbelievers and mockers to observe it. I mean, they, they were ridiculing him. They were mocking him when he said what they did. So he put them all out of the house. Here we see the authority of Christ again. I mean, it's not normal that a quote-unquote stranger would come into the house and be able to expel the professional mourners who were hired by a family member. And yet, with such authority does this man speak, he puts them out of the house. He brings in James and Peter and John, this inner circle of the disciples. Here continuing in the Gospel of Mark, this theme of the insiders versus outsiders. Those who are true disciples versus those who are, you know, in the multitude who, who are not. It's, it's this constant theme that's being emphasized. But anyway, the Lord put them all out of the house. And then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumi, Aramaic words, that was our Lord's everyday language. Ever since the Babylonian captivity, Aramaic became the primary language of the Jews. When they returned to the land under Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, they came speaking Aramaic. In the days of Jesus, they were speaking Aramaic. And that's translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age. The resurrection of this girl was not just her resurrection. It was a foretaste of the resurrection to come for you and for me and for everyone who believes. The word of our Lord has effective power. And when he speaks, that word has creative and life-giving energy. This is the word by which he made the world. This is the word by which he raised Lazarus from the dead. This is the word by which he will one day raise us all up to enjoy life and blessedness in his eternal kingdom. If we but reach out, and touch the hem of his garment like the poor woman, or fall at his feet and beg of his mercy, confessing who he is and what he's done for our souls. As he said in John 5, 28 to 29, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in their graves will hear the voice will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil 
to the resurrection of condemnation. That resurrection is coming. Are you ready for it? Let's pray. Oh Lord, please do make us ready for this resurrection. Please do, Lord, speak the words of peace and reassurance to our hearts. Let us know, Lord, that by the power of the living Christ, we have been truly and fully healed from our sin, from our vices, from habits that enslave us, that the living Christ has set us free, and that he's put not only joy in our hearts in the place of fear, but a new song in our mouths. Please, Lord, orient our hearts to you this day and throughout the week that we may give you the honor and the praise and the glory for having healed our souls. In the name of Christ our Savior, amen.